0: Welcome to From What If to What Next. Thank you all so much for your comments following our first podcast. I'm Rob Hopkins and you are very, very welcome. If you're listening to this, then you're most likely one of the wonderful people who have subscribed via Patreon to support this endeavour, for which I am immensely grateful. The concept of this podcast is really straightforward. It's based on your what-if questions. You send in your questions, I then sift through them, find one or two that fire my curiosity, and then go and find the two very finest people to help me explore that question. Your questions will shape this show and make it what it is. Today we are asking a question I explore in from what-is to what-if, namely, what-if Universal basic income sparked a revival of the imagination. To delve deep into this beautiful and timely question, I'm joined by two guests who've been giving this a lot of thought. Alexis Fraz sees culture as both a context for and a catalyst of social and ecological well-being. Through her work at Helicon Collaborative, where she is a co-director, she works with partners in the cultural, environmental and philanthropic sectors to support the role of artists and culture in a more just, sustainable and creative world. Her perspective on system change draws from her background in cultural anthropology, Chinese medicine, permaculture design, Buddhism and martial arts. Phil Tier was a co-founder of the legendary 1990s London creative agency St Luke's, an influential experiment in employee co-ownership and creative working that Harvard Business School called the most frightening company on earth. And Fast Company called the ad agency to end all ad agencies. Philip DeVar has advised brands and governments on their creative strategies. He blogs that artists create markets on medium and has been fascinated by the power of creativity to transform people and places since he wrote his thesis on Glasgow as a postmodern city. His book, The Coming Age of Imagination, explores how automation and a universal basic income could lead to an explosion of creativity and it's been one of my most enjoyed lockdown reads. So welcome both. Thank you. Thank you. So I'd like to start by inviting you both to close your eyes and to get comfortable. And you might like to do this at home too. And I'd like you to imagine that we are 10 years in the future. And thanks to the bold, brilliant activism of the intervening 10 years, the cascades of positive change that rippled through society and the rapid shifting of societal norms, we now live in a world where indeed a universal basic income has sparked a revival of the imagination. It has been a remarkable transformation. In 2020 it felt unimaginable but here we are. Our lives, our economy, our sense of what's now possible feels profoundly different to 2020. I wonder if you might each take us on a walk down the streets of the towns and cities of the future where that has come to pass to describe to us what it sounds like, smells like, feels like in your imagining. Bring it alive. What stands out In this world where universal basic income has been a part of our lives for the past seven or eight years, what's most striking?
1: We have cities and towns with clean air, which we can smell and smell the flowers and smell the trees. We hear the birds. We swim in the clean water in our lakes and our rivers. People are healthier. You can see it. People spend time gardening or cooking or with their family, doing things that really matter to them. There's more room for gifts so people are doing things and contributing to their community in ways that matter to them and that matter to their community without having to worry about whether it's something that they can profit from. And there's more cultural richness and cultural diversity because tradition bearers and masters of their craft actually spend time on doing that work without having to worry that it's something that they, they can, again, turn a profit from. So we're seeing a lot of both biological and cultural diversity and a lot of care so that people are, are spending time together, investing in each other and investing in their community.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Phil?
2: Financial. Insecurity has been eradicated. People no longer go to work because they have no choice or they won't be able to pay their bills or pay their rent or make make their mortgage payments or whatever. Work has changed because of that. The famous concept of bullshit jobs, the idea that the job they do serves no real purpose at all in the world, something that 38% of adults back in 2020 in the UK believed. Uh, has, has gone. The jobs we have are left with and the jobs we have created are more purposeful. They are jobs that give us a sense of self-esteem rather than just a wage pack at the end of the month. Micro-entrepreneurialism is rife because with financial security, people have a headspace to think about what they want to do. But this entrepreneurialism is maybe not like The entrepreneurialism we associate with Silicon Valley and places like that. This is small, individual, almost cottage industry entrepreneurialism, where people may have two, three, four projects on the go at any one time. But entrepreneurialism may refer to initiatives within the community and caring for others. Walking down that street, it's it's an environment where people are less anxious, less stressed, less on edge with each other and happier.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you both so much. And I, I wonder if if we might start with hopefully an easy question, but one that would be good to get clear for listeners before we go on, which is for you, what is a universal basic income?
2: Universal basic income is a regular payment made to every adult for the extent of their life. It is universal in the sense that everyone gets it. It is basic in that it is certainly not enough to sort of allow us all to retire. And it's a right. It's given to people as a right. No one, and it's not means tested. Most importantly, it's not means tested. Nobody can take it away from you. It's yours for life.
0: Great. Alexis, is there any embellishment or, or addition you would make to that?
1: Yeah, I, I love that definition. I think that what I would add to that is that it's an income floor. So it's something that people have as a security net that is just given for living. Really conceptually, I think it's a share of the common wealth that we have um, and that we've accrued throughout time so that everyone, no matter where you're born, no matter what your circumstances are, has a share of that common wealth.
0: Fabulous. And I wonder how you would both capture the current state of play of this idea. Where are we with it at the moment? And how has this time of coronavirus increased or reduced uh, its likelihood of being implemented? Well,
1: I'm coming to this conversation from the United States. And so, you know, I think it's different in different places. We have countries that have already implemented some version of this or experimented with some version of this. Our closest example here is in Alaska where people actually do receive a dividend. Um, All Alaskans receive a, a dividend. It's mostly oil money, actually. It offsets the high cost of living in Alaska. But I think that in general, in the US, it hasn't been an idea that is has a lot of purchase among the general public, mainly because people wonder how we're going to pay for it. But I think with the stimulus bill that we've passed because of coronavirus um, and the great need um, because of the increase in joblessness here, which is much worse than many other places, especially Europe. We've seen that people are starting to understand why that might be necessary. um, and, And I think because it's going beyond something that the very poor receive, but it's something that many people are in need of now. There's starting to be more of a willingness to look at it as a potential ongoing social program. So I think it's really expanded the Overton window, if you will, of of possibility in terms of what people will think is possible but also what people think is just
0: great and uh, yeah we'll we'll come on to the how to pay for it question in a little bit but phil what's your sense of that how has this time of coronavirus increased or reduced our likelihood of a, a universal basic income
2: uh, it's turned it on its head i think i think i think overton window is a great concept to understand what's going on at, at the moment I mean, I, i'm talking from based in Brighton in, in in the UK. But pre-COVID, pre-lockdown, pre-this pandemic, this crisis, universal basic income was, you know, a utopian ideal. It was something, you know, it was a fantasy of a few, if you like. Now we've got the Scottish First Minister, the equivalent of a sort of Prime Minister up there, supporting um, a universal basic income and getting ready to test it. We have the Pope supporting universal basic income. We have the Financial Times newspaper. You know, the Financial Times is a very conservative newspaper interested in markets and economics. And it is recommending a temporary emergency universal basic income for places like Africa to help them through this crisis. I think the Overton window has definitely shifted. I think it's uh, what was once idealistic, now seems, eminently sensible and pragmatic. I think part of the reason for that is that as soon as our government started to take this pandemic seriously, the first thing they had to do was guarantee people's wages, to guarantee their income. The public are growing in support. There was a petition to the UK Parliament and last week. It was signed by 100 MPs from across the political parties and also by over 110,000 Citizens. It's having its moment and it's having its moment through necessity. I think because we are suddenly acutely aware of how financially insecure most of us are all of the time. And if something goes wrong, we could be in dire straits and there's suddenly a need for some security. You know, what was meant to be the safety net, what was meant to be the security, our welfare and benefit systems are really not fit for that purpose anymore. They've been engineered and geared over the years to one purpose only, which is to get people back off benefits. And that doesn't work when you need the security of ongoing support
0: there was a question alexis that, that that you referred to which is uh you know the question that always has to ac- accompany any discussion of u- universal basic income is this all sounds amazing but how are we going to pay for it it would take an awful lot of money and surely at the end of this virus with the worst economic contraction for decades looming just giving money away to people is madness surely
2: i think i think the answer is uh, we can afford it. we can afford it if we want to afford it we can afford many things when we when we have to we can afford we could afford in 2008 to do something that was not supposed to be possible. We basically pumped digital money into the markets in, in, in astonishing levels of quantitative easing. That was meant to destroy markets, but it didn't. That was meant to create hyperinflation. That was a theory anyway. It didn't. We can afford it when we want to afford something. I think in terms of how you pay for it, there are different models. There is one model which is particularly um, so popular amongst basic income sort of writers and activists in the in, in the US. It's about a redistribution of the money that's already in the economy. So it's not printing new money; it's just putting existing money to different uses. It shifts money from some benefits and puts it into basic income. There are other models which would say you sort of you, you look on it as uh, Ruth Bregman has it as quantitative easing, uh, as venture capital for the people. And you do the same as we did. when We're sort of enacting quantitative easing. You 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 create the money. There are other arguments that say you can sort of it's a you can work it through taxation. What that means is those who really need the money keep the money, and though the, and the wealthy when they receive their basic income they lose it immediately through because they're on a higher tax rate. There are all sorts of different ways. My my mind I think we'll afford it in a combination of models we'll have it won't be one single thing one single strategy we'll combine various strategies to sort of um to make it possible
1: i think national context is really important here and i'm i'm not i'm not i should say as a caveat i'm not an expert on basic income i think phil knows and many other people know much more about the nitty-gritty than i do but i think what we have seen in the u.s at least is that when we want to find money for things we do. The conversation here around things like the Green New Deal for the last year has been, how do we pay for it? Or you know, Bernie Sanders' political platform, healthcare for all, things like that has been, how do we pay for it? And the minute that coronavirus hit, we were able to do a massive tax plan within the span of a couple of weeks um, and pay for it, just as Phil was saying. So I think... The money is there, either because we, the government, decides to spend it and make money, or you know we've got six billionaires who who own the majority of the wealth in the world. So I think that we can do both. What he's saying, and and the fact is, you know, we need to understand also that we have the billionaires and the wealth is concentrated there because we have the inequality. We have the inequality because we have the billionaires. Those are related trends, and so if we really want to talk about a different kind of society and think about the society we wish we had. We have to think about what a more fair distribution of the wealth, the commonwealth, as I said at the beginning, really would be.
0: Great. Uh, The premise of this podcast is that from the perspective of climate change and many other interlinked challenges, one of the things we need right now is a collective and intentional rebuilding of our collective imagination, a nurturing of the conditions in which we can live the fullest imaginative lives. Alexis, you wrote recently that a universe basic income would transform the life of artists because they would no longer be living precarious existences and it would enable more cultural diversity among artists and you also stated that artists could have a huge amount to offer a time in which universal basic income had become a reality as as you wrote artists can demonstrate to others what an engaged and purposeful life can look like outside of a job and provide inspiration and guidance for society as it makes this transition in what ways does universal basic income have the potential to unlock everyone's creativity and artistry and what is it that reassures you that we wouldn't all just spend all day on the sofa eating chocolate biscuits
1: (laughs) right i I mean it's so funny that's one of the main Critiques of basic income that comes up is, well, we need jobs, right? We need jobs to structure our days. We need jobs to give our lives purpose. And but as we've been talking about, many people have jobs that that are very much not that, that are the jobs that, you know, are, are very degrading, are dangerous, are things that their hearts don't want to do. One of the reasons why people who care about climate care about basic income is because often communities that are essentially pushed to make the choice to do jobs that destroy their own ecosystems or quite dangerous to their own health working in extractive industries wouldn't do it if they had another option and they, and they do it because they have to so i think i think i think it's a fallacy and i think artists are a very powerful demonstration of that because we see that artists do work that is meaningful to them and often don't receive income for that work or receive income for it that doesn't match the amount of time that they put into it so many artists are self-employed it's in the us at least it's 3.6 percent more likely to be self-employed than the the regular you know the rest of the population and most earn much less than the median income here and are in, in debt from school or just having to take care of their lives so they're doing it despite the fact that it isn't necessarily a a wise choice for their financial life. And yet they're creating great amount of of beauty and care and service in the world. Well, one of the things that we know from, you know, we do a lot of research on the the field of artists. And one of the things that we've seen is that unfortunately the artist community is actually not very equitable because people do need to subsidize their ability to work as an artist. And so over time, what you end up with is that the people who can afford to do that are people who come from some amount of privilege or wealth already or have a spouse who can support their work or are exceptional in some way and, and make it in the in the arts world, um, either the commercial or the nonprofit arts world. Not only it's, it's limiting who can pursue that kind of work, um, but it actually limits the kind of creative work that we see in the world. And part of my belief in in our work is that the stories that we see, the culture that we see, it shapes how we see ourselves as a culture. And so if we're only seeing culture that's created by a, a certain narrow group of people. Um, it may be very good, but it it is limited. And so I think that there's a value in, tr- in having that imaginative capacity be more widespread. And basic income is, is a way that could equalize the playing field a bit so that it's not only available for people who can sort of subsidize their own labor or have, have privilege, but actually can be more distributed throughout the population as a whole. And I think we'll all benefit for that. I think we'll see, you know, the artists that are working in community settings, suddenly having to not be fearful of pursuing that path. We'll see artists that are maintaining community cultural traditions in certain indigenous and in immigrant communities here for example there's cultural bearers that you know that is their entire life is being the the master artist in their community and often they're not paid for that so I think we would see a, a huge flourishing of our practice and of, of cultural cultural continuity
0: mm, wonderful it always feels kind of heartbreaking to me like when when I went to art school people went because they wanted to learn the skills and have the practice. And often increasingly, it feels like people are going with a very commercial and increasingly commercial mindset. You know, how do I come out the other end of this and uh, there's not that space to kind of really explore. It's They have to hit the ground running as a commercially successful artist almost.
1: Right, which sucks the work back into the market. And, you know, that's great for certain things. And, and Hollywood, you know, I mean, I think we have great movies coming out. We have a lot of wonderful content there, um, but it really begs the question of whether the only kind of culture that we value is culture that um, can succeed in the markets that we have.
0: I've just been rereading my favourite a biography of Vincent van Gogh, who in effect had a universal basic income, for, <laughs> thanks to his brother Theo. And uh, that was, uh, we can see the impacts of that. Phil, you, you've you written beautifully, I, I think, in your book about how a universal basic income could unleash an artistic insurrection of the mind, which is the most beautiful turn of phrase, I think. What did you mean by that? And how would we know when we had created one? What would it be like to live in an in, in a, in a artistic insurrection of the mind? It sounds great. In some, way, in
2: some ways, and I, 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 don't, I, I mean, I don't mean this flippantly because I know COVID's terrible and the, the effects of it are dreadful, but in this lockdown culture, we're seeing a bit of that insurrection going on. There are two things happening simultaneously. One is our consumer spending is nosediving. The shops aren't open. We get very little to spend our money on. We don't have as much money as we had before. But at the same time, our creativity is skyrocketing social feeds are full of people sharing their dressing up like old master paintings or sharing their dance videos and TikTok and you know sort of a, it doesn't take long. It does not it only takes a, a sort of nanosecond of boredom before we get in touch with our creative side. In some ways that's insurrectionary in its own way. I absolutely agree with everything you know Alexis is saying. I would say you can expand it from artists to creative people and everyone's creative what security in space gives us, financial security in space gives us a chance to use our imagination and start to dream a little bit. The other point to make there, I think, is that we all benefit when that happens. In the same way as when when artists work in a place, they, they mythologize that place. Just like Picasso's studio in Paris is like a shrine that people go to visit. But more, more dynamically, you look at how the the work of artists in New York in the, in the late 60s and early 70s, a very sort of almost bankrupt city and sort of gave it new cultural value. It starts with the artists, then the galleries move in, then the people move in who want to live near the artists and be like the artists. Then a sort of regeneration process kicks off. You see it elsewhere. You see it, I, I, one of the things I talk about in the book is the the rise of Etsy. As a crafts market. But when the people who designed it, so who were a couple of um, web designers who were asked by a crafts market in Brooklyn if they could put them online, and they decided rather than just building a website, they build a platform and they'd make it a bit like eBay and they'd see what happened, And then there's this incredible explosion of untapped supply of creativity from all over the States and then from all over the world. And the market it created was a very, very different market to normal markets. There was one stat which stuck in my mind: ownership of businesses in the US by gender. 80% of offline businesses were owned by a man. 80% of Etsy businesses were owned by a woman. There was a huge, untapped market of creativity there. It was disruptive. It was like a portal. It gave us an insight into what sort of capability. That is out
1: there. Can I build on that a bit?
0: Yeah, do please. Yeah.
1: Because I think, you know, the way that, that we like to define artists is people who make art. And so I, I completely agree. That there are over 2 million professional artists, but it's really about the people who make work. And when we, you know, there's been studies of, of that as well here. And what we see is that it's over 50% of people who claim being an artist in some way in their life already. I think the question is not, how do we make people creative or artistic? I think the question is, what is the infrastructure and support structure that can in, unleash that and allow that to be manifested in the world? And I think what Phil's pointing out is that you know you have a new piece of infrastructure like Etsy, and all of a sudden, the natural resource of creativity is unleashed. And so the question we could all be asking is, basic income is a tool that can be used for that purpose. There are others as well, I think, that can be supportive structures to allow that to to flourish.
0: And Phil mentioned there that a universal basic income would allow people to to to, to live more creative lives on, on a kind of a daily basis and uh, but living in a time now where people so struggle to live uh, creative lives what what is that doing to us what what how does it manifest the fact that there's all of this potential that goes unrealized because people are so frantically just trying to kind of make ends meet and everything how, how is that affecting us, do you think?
1: Creativity comes out of the woodwork, even in lives that are very constrained. So we see it even in communities or maybe even especially sometimes in communities where there's a lot of, whether it's poverty or, or difficulty with the basics, um, we still see lots of creativity. So, but we also see the growth of what's been called deaths of despair, whether it's the opioid epidemic or incredible rise in things like depression and obesity and anxiety. And I think that speaks to the fact that we're living in a context and an environment that is actually quite unhealthy for our beings. And so there's something that's not being met for us. The human ecology is not being nourished and is being degraded just like our natural ecology. And so there's the the potential to open that up. And I I just want to say too, I think it's beyond just individual creative expression, which I think is really critical and important and almost a prerequisite. But I think what we see when, and and I work with some grassroots organizing groups that are not art groups that frequently use art in their work. And one of the reasons why they do it is what, what we see is when people start to begin to practice their own creative agency. They make a piece of art or they do a community play or whatever it is. They make a mural. Um, What we see is that they start to reclaim a sense of agency in general. They start to see themselves as creators again of the world, even if it's a creative world. And then they start to get motivated and feel their own capacity to do that in other parts of their lives as well. I think some people sort of look at what we're saying and say, well, you know, great, everyone's making art. And one of the things that we want to say is it's yes it is and it's also people participating in their communities it's people fighting the bad things that are going on it's people having brilliant ideas of the good things that could be and making them real it's people feeling a sense of cohesion and connection to their neighbors we call it creative people power you know they have a way to direct that energy towards positive change in the world
2: i totally agree absolutely totally agree i think there's there's two key words for me here on one side, you've got insecurity. and the other side, you've got agency. I think agency is a brilliant impression for this because what universal basic income does, what financial security does, is it gives people the opportunity to make their own decisions and to make positive positive, constructive and creative decisions about their life. When that's not there, the system that we've got at the moment which keeps as many people as possible in a state of financial insecurity because for whatever reason, uh, there, there is a belief that the only way to get people to do the jobs that the economy wants people to do is to make it a necessity that they have to do it. It's very destructive. And there's good evidence of this from um, the history of basic income tests. There's a brilliant um, example from Canada where basic income was tested for two years in a town called Dauphin between 1974 and 1976. During that time, visits to a&E to accident and emergency units and hospitals went down by 8.5%. Eight, eight when you look at the data, it was things like domestic abuse fell away, mental health issues fell away. At the same time, school attendance went up, teenage pregnancy rates fell. And finally, employment rates for every single group except one increased. The only demographic group who were less likely to work or the young because they were staying on at school. So when you take away that insecurity, you give people the agency to make creative decisions about how they're going to live their own lives.
0: Mm. Fabulous. Uh, and there was a question I had for you, Phil, that came for me out of the book, as you know, I said at the beginning, and a lot of my work is around climate change and, and, and how we make the shift in the speed that we need to make around climate change. I read some of the arguments in the book as the, the idea that automation is the thing that will make a universal basic income inevitable and achievable. How does this sort of shift to everything being automated and manufacturing being automated tie in with the fact that we need to consume less? Is it possible that actually we end up having a universal basic income, but underpinning it with patterns of consumption and consumerism that got us into this mess in the first place?
2: I think it's a good question. And it depends upon how you define consumerism, because when we talk about consumerism, we tend to talk about the more negative, wasteful, destructive, planetary, climate-destructive effects of consumerism. What I argue in the book and what I believe is that I think consumerism generally is misdirected creativity. I think the, the feeling we have is, I want to do something different. I want to do something original. But the sort of means of meeting that need that, is be, that we have developed for ourselves is shopping or is long distance travel on holiday or is buying cars. We are trying to express ourselves. We are trying to say something about who we are as an individual. We're trying to convey our values in some sort of way, but we do it in ways that are not necessarily satisfying to us and definitely not, not particularly good for the planet.
0: Utah Phillips, who was a musician, poet, storyteller, always used to say, you know, it's the, it's not the lazy people we need to worry about, it's the busy people who are causing all the problems. Um, Alexis, I, I, I often read about universal basic income being promoted as being a well-being strategy, a social equality strategy, and indeed, in the context of automation, a kind of social cohesion strategy. But you argue that we need to reframe, you both argue that we need to reframe it as being a larger, wider national imagination strategy, that without it, the revival of our collective imagination would be an awful lot harder to achieve. How potent in your experience is this argument that a universal basic income could lead to a flourishing of imagination and creativity? And might that argument be one of the keys to unlocking its implementation?
1: Yeah, I mean I think especially in the realm of climate I've I've worked with some folks including you know big organizations like the Sierra Club and others who have said the biggest barrier to the changes that we need to make to create conditions for a livable future is imagination. The biggest reason why we can't get there is because people can't really imagine something that's different from what we have now. And so I do think that creating the the, the context for unleashing that imagination is critical and, and essential. I think just having a basic income in and of itself won't necessarily do that. I think the reality is we have a traumatized society, whether we're talking about the people who are literally being harmed by our economy now. So they've been extracted from, they live in toxic environments, things like that. But I think also all of us, I, I do think that we're rediscovering a lot of pleasure and the creative instinct. And I, I love the idea that creativity is an antidote to consumerism. I think that's something that, that I've talked about a lot, but also it's not an instantaneous shift. I think we have a lot of cultural habits and worldviews, around both work and consumerism that need to be unlearned. We need to relearn ways of being and we need to heal from having a culture that does demand that we put ourselves in situations that aren't good for our being, or we harm others to make a profit, or we compete with one another and try to get as much as we can for ourselves. So I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of mindsets that need to be unwound. So I really see it as healing and imagination as going hand in hand. And then, you know, the next step that we really need to get to too. And I think sometimes the utopians among us, which I sometimes put myself in, um, and sometimes a dystopian. So I, I vacillate, but we need to also acknowledge, that we actually have to do the things we actually have to create the different structures we have to change our systems we have to change our behaviors and that takes takes work and there will be conflict too as we start to really figure out how to live in the new world and i actually think that arts and culture and sort of creative practice can be an ally in all those steps all the way from from our healing to our imagination to creating the new thing that we want to see in the world there's a lot of possibility there
0: great thanks phil it was, it
2: was a Portuguese evolutionary psychologist called Antonio Banderas. I think his name is. <laughs> the book here. They wrote a book called the, um, *The Strange Order of Things*, and it's I kind of read it recently, and it's it's kind of melted my brain a little bit. His core concept was a concept called homeostasis, and homeostasis is common to every living organism within, with a central nervous system. So from this five hundred million years ago, they you know those first creatures that could move a little bit demonstrated a very particular behaviour: moved towards conditions which were positive to flourishing, and they would retract away from conditions that were that were risky or dangerous. And he takes it up; it, it, it builds it up into sort of a metaphor for how cultures created. He says that you know first we feel, we follow. This ancient instinct that's deeply, deeply coded into our DNA to feel whether this feels like a, a positive thing or feels like a risky thing. And then we think and then we do. And the thing about basic income up to now is it's been a thinking thing. It's something we reason about and we, we sort of ponder over. But now in this environment, it's becoming much more of a feel, much more instinctive. We want to feel secure and it feels right. One other book quote, sorry, there's a, a brilliant book called Lanark and it's a novel written by a guy called Alistair Gray and he wrote it about the city of Glasgow back when Glasgow was an industrial city in the 70s and 80s. His lead character is an art school student. There's a moment in the book where he's sort of complaining about the absolute lack of art of great art that comes out of Glasgow. He says why is there no great art ever produced here? No great art is nothing you know it's it's such a vacuum and his friend says look when you think of the world's great cities, you think of, you think of Rome or Paris or Venice or New York or wherever, you know, before you ever go to these places, you visit them in your imagination through the work of an artist, through films and songs and novels and whatever, you visit these great cities first. A place has never been visited by an artist, it has never been used by an artist. And not even the people who live there can live there imaginatively. Real value of art around ideas like basic income is about inviting people to visit it in their imagination and to get a feel for what it could do for them before we visit it in person.
1: I love that framework of feeling, thinking, and doing, and I, I need to read this philosopher, but I think that art also reaches people it reaches people on the feeling level and the imagination level but also one of the 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 types of artists that I tend to work with a lot are people who are actually creating interventions in physical places here it's called creative placemaking i'm not sure if it's the same language but you know the idea of people who are actually creating different environments, in in places, in their communities, um, that kind of prototype or prefigure the type of, of place we'd like to be in in the future. And I think that also creates that more embodied experience of what the possibilities are. And it's sometimes people dismiss them and say, oh, they're so small. How could we scale that? But I think it really relates to the transition town movement, actually, because it's this idea of, well, if we see it, if we feel it, if we live it, then we can create it more broadly and it may become our new
0: reality. Wonderful. Wonderful. I have a copy of Lanark actually, and I've never got around to reading it, but that's inspired me to get it down off the shelf. So thank you for that, Phil. If, if people are listening to this and thinking, I would so love to live in that world. I would love to live in a world where universal basic income unlocks a new renaissance of the imagination and creativity. Where, where should they start? How might they help to move that forward to become a reality?
1: First, if you're if you're in the U.S., I think there's a lot of political work to be done right now in getting the Democrats. Hopefully, we we end up having a, a democratic government the next time around. But if we do, I think using that Overton window opportunity to really push further on both on all levels, on local levels, um, there are local experiments that are being done right now um, in Stockton, California, for example, in different places. But really, demanding that this is something that we deserve. Getting involved with groups that are doing that already, I think, is is a good move as a starting point.
2: Absolutely. I, I, don't, I, I can't imagine there's ever been so many basic income pressure groups, activist groups, movements, organizations than there is now. There's been an incredible injection of energy, but I've lost count of the amount of basic income groups that I follow on social media. There are so many of them. They are definitely a good start. But also there are books, you know, read Rutger Bregman's um, Utopia for Realists. You know, it's a fantastic book and basic income is a big part of that But What Bregman does very, very cleverly, I think, is he, he tries to make basic income apolitical. So he doesn't tie it to the left or the right or the centre or whatever. He's He, he recognises that there are those on the left who think it's a fantastic idea and there are also those on the left who think it's a dangerous idea because it's going to take away benefits. There are, there are those in the libertarian right, the progressive libertarian right, who think it's a good idea because it reduces your dependency on benefits. There are others who don't. It's, a, it's less of a traditional political idea as a progressive idea in its own right. It's an idea that's looking for a new politics. Can
1: I just say one thing about that? Do, please. Because I I think that's really right. And I think um, being aware of one's own values and how those play out in a basic income proposal is really critical. There are definitely basic income approaches that I think might lead to a more individualistic, more competitive, sort of undermine the foundations of a social safety net that i personally believe is is important which isn't to say that there's not a a place for for something that's apolitical or that crosses political lines i think there really is but i also think it can be co-opted by people who may not have the well-being for all in mind so as people look for places to be involved just be aware that there is that spectrum and to suss out what's behind it as you do
2: i think that's absolutely right i agree with at the same time there's a There's a wonderful sort of concept that I've come across called Fully Automated Luxury Communism. <laughs> <Right>.
1: yeah,
2: <laughs> Which I love, absolutely love. You know, just as, just as basic income stops being utopian and becomes pragmatic, somebody comes up with a more utopian version of basic income just to, to project further into the future. So a future where the machines do all the work, we we can pay each other you know, or pay ourselves as sort of generous enough basic income to mean we don't have to work anymore. We can choose to do things, but we don't have to work anymore, which is a lovely utopian idea in some ways.
0: Fabulous. So um, just before we draw to a close, if, if you had any last final closing thoughts on that question, what if a universal basic income sparked a revival of the imagination? Just if there's anything that you would like to say that you haven't got around to saying yet.
2: You know, when they tested universal basic income in Finland two years ago, um, it was The test was seen by some to be a failure, and by others to be a success. It was tested amongst the long-term unemployed, it was tested against a control group. So one group of long-term unemployed people had, were given a basic income, it wasn't means-tested, and another group were not, were just given normal benefits. And it was to see whether the people with basic income were more likely to take piecemeal, gig economy-style work than the other group. What well, they found out in, the, in the two years of the test, that didn't happen. But what they also found was that neither group was less likely to work. So that was quite good. But most importantly, what they found was that the group with basic income were significantly happier and less stressed than the group on benefits. That's the point, isn't it? Why would we deny that to each other? Don't we all want to be happier and less stressed? Wonderful. Thank you, Alexis.
0: The other
1: thing I would say is that we aren't starting from zero here, that many people are so deeply in debt that a basic income is going to go directly to paying debt rather than the better world that we've been imagining on this call. We're seeing this in the US where people are getting their stimulus checks, but then they're immediately being snatched up by creditors, You know, whether it's credit cards or um, healthcare bills or whatever it is. So I think we also need to think about debt and getting people back to a baseline. And there are, again, really amazing groups that are working on this. There's a group called the Debt Collective. There's a debt strike going on here. There are people who are calling for moratoriums on, on rents during the period of time that we're in right now. So I think other countries, Canada and Europe, have dealt with the interim crisis of covid in a completely different way than we have here in the US but in the US dealing with debt goes part and parcel to giving people basic income
0: mm, thank you thank you well thank you it's been a fascinating conversation it's been uh, it's been wonderful thank you both so much Our next podcast, which will be posted in two weeks, will explore a what-if question sent in by one of you listening out there. So please look out for the message via Patreon, inviting you to share your questions. My deepest thanks to Alexis and Phil, to Ben Adicott for theme music and production. See you in a fortnight.